This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. COVID-19 has taken a massive toll. Every single person on this planet has been affected in one way or another. Countless have been infected. Millions have died. And yet those numbers, while staggering, do not fully encompass the struggle many of us have faced. The mental health of individuals and indeed of families has suffered. And as we're finding out, the pain has been amplified by already existing inequalities. This week, we're going to look at the true effects of this pandemic on mental health. We'll find out what individuals and families are going through and what the research is telling us based on their own experiences. And we'll also explore some of the resources that may be available to us even when sitting down face-to-face with a provider is not. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and I'm going to take you into a world that is rarely talked about but has become so prevalent during this pandemic. It's time to get started. This is the Super Awesome Science Show. As history has shown, pandemics tend to come in waves. The first is the shock as the pathogen starts to spread rapidly around the world. The second comes when we realize our efforts to stop the virus, while effective, are not sustainable. And the result ends up being even worse than the first. This may repeat itself numerous times until the infections, hospitalizations, and deaths finally come to a halt. And that's when the third wave comes into play. It's the blowback that comes after the coast is cleared, and we look back to find out what went wrong and who is to blame. Then there is the fourth wave, which could be the most prominent and longest lasting, and unfortunately, the most silent. It's the effects of the pandemic on mental health. We may think of ourselves as capable of getting through this trying time, and that may be so. But there will still be repercussions, and they will be complex. We will need to better understand them as we move past COVID-19. That's why I'm joined by Emily Jenkins. She is an assistant professor at the School of Nursing at the University of British Columbia. She focuses on optimizing mental health outcomes for Canadians through collaborative mental health promotion strategies in health services, policy development, redesign, and the all-important knowledge translation. She's also reached out to Canadians over the last year and learned about how they really feel about this pandemic. She's going to share her findings here with us now. What are the drivers of risk to an individual's mental health? I think in answering this question, it's important to make a distinction between mental health and mental ill health. Uh, Mental health is a strengths-based concept. It refers to a state of well-being in which people are able to cope with life stressors, find meaning, connect with others, and make informed choices. 
everybody has mental health and it fluctuates over time and in response to changing circumstances. So given this definition, it's really no wonder that the mental health of populations in Canada and globally has deteriorated in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. For example, mental health effects of the pandemic have been fueled by isolation, job loss, economic concerns, a lack of childcare and gendered caregiving responses, fears about physical and emotional safety, food insecurity and housing instability. In contrast, mental ill health refers to a range of conditions and their related symptoms. The, the ones that we see in our population are anxiety and mood disorders. In fact, approximately one in five Canadians live with a diagnosed mental health condition each year and experiences with these diagnoses can range in intensity, but they interfere with everyday functioning in some way. And the reason that I bring this up is that in recent years, the term mental health has come to be used frequently in our everyday discourse, though often conflated with mental ill health or specific diagnoses. In our research, which has been conducted in partnership with the Canadian Mental Health Association, we've been doing a, an online multi-wave monitoring survey examining the mental health impacts of the pandemic on people living in Canada. And approximately 40% of the general adult population in Canada reports a deterioration in their mental health. Further, a large proportion also report challenging emotional responses to the pandemic. This includes feelings of stress, anxiety and worry, depression and hopelessness. Other research has identified an uptick in clinical conditions, including post-traumatic stress disorder and diagnosed anxiety. Populations who experience discrimination, exclusion or stigma based on gender, race or ethnicity, their sexuality, mental health or disability status and income are much more likely to report mental health consequences. And so because of this, I, I just also wanted to mention that in considering the drivers of risk to an individual's mental health, it's critical to also consider the context in which that individual is embedded and also the protective factors that help support and sustain well-being. How does one differentiate between, say, uh, an outcome that is seen qualitatively as opposed to maybe something that you can identify with, say, an MRI or a CAT scan. We did a show a few weeks ago about neurological sequelae related to COVID-19. What outcomes have you seen related to COVID-19 that may not necessarily be related to any kind of secondary effects of a viral infection? Yeah, well, I would say that the majority of the mental health impacts that we see are not actually related to a viral infection. Though we do know that, as you mentioned, there are some uh, cases where patients are experiencing depression or first episode psychotic symptoms uh, in relation to a COVID-19 infection. But for the vast majority of our populations, we would say that the mental health impacts are actually due to the secondary impacts that are influencing mental health through the social and structural determinants of health. So these increased uh, reports of uh, mental health deterioration, increasing levels of suicidality or suicidal thinking, experiences of food insecurity and um, fear about emotional or domestic violence are, are also up and all tightly linked to experiences of poor mental health or mental ill health. Would you say then that this is really a magnification of what we are seeing just in a regular Canadian context? Perhaps it is showing 
deficiencies or, or gaps in our ability to take care of individuals across the board in this country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what I think uh, COVID, the pandemic and the mental health impacts have really helped to highlight is that mental health is um, mental health and mental ill health are complex. And the experience is not just shaped by our genetics or personal physiology, but very profoundly embedded within the daily environments or context within which we live. One of the big issues that always seems to come up with respect to the idea of mental health or mental ill health is the use of isolation and or quarantine to be able to stem the spread. Now, I'm a microbiologist. For me, that's what you're supposed to do. But when you look at it from a very wide perspective or spectrum of all potential diagnoses, this may actually end up being worse than the virus itself. If that's really the case, can you give us some perspective as to why that may be? Yeah, well, I I wouldn't go as far as to say that it's worse than the virus itself, but we did recently publish a piece in the journal Psychiatry Research where we explored the mental health impacts of quarantine measures. It's estimated that these measures are successful in averting between 44 and 81% of cases and 31 to 63% of deaths in the pandemic context. So absolutely critical in terms of a, a public health measure. The grounds for quarantine have included confirmed diagnosis of COVID-19, having symptoms, uh, having been exposed to somebody with confirmed illness, as well as recent travel outside of Canada and in some cases interprovincially. In our research, which is among the first to examine the mental health effects of quarantine during the COVID-19 pandemic, we found that it's associated with elevated proportions of suicidal thinking and self-harm. Specifically, there was a significant increase in the odds of having suicidal thinking or self-harm amongst those who'd had to quarantine for any reason other than recent travel. So, for example, possible exposure or having symptoms. And in fact, those who'd had to self-isolate with symptoms or exposure to someone with symptoms were five to seven times more likely to experience suicidal thinking than those who had not had to quarantine. This suggests the need for a coordinated mental health support response. And further, we would argue that such supports need to be active as opposed to passive, meaning that they're built into public health surveillance measures and become a standard part of protocol, um, in addition to monitoring for quarantine compliance and symptoms, for example. Having a social structure or social net is obviously something uh, we all hope to have, Have any coping mechanisms been identified that perhaps may not be the best approach so that people who are listening here can appreciate what they might be tempted to do, but perhaps should not do? Yeah, well, you know, these are difficult times. And so I think uh, many people are trying their best to to manage with increased levels of stress and uh, very uncertain uh, conditions. So what we've seen is, you know, for a portion of the population, this is translated into what we would consider to be less healthy coping mechanisms, such as increases in um, use of different substances as a way to cope. We've also seen that nearly 80% of our overall sample population has indicated that they're coping well. The most commonly reported kind of more healthy coping strategies have included things like exercise and maintaining a healthy lifestyle, 
which has been conceptualized as getting enough sleep, eating a balanced diet and um, exercising, as well as spending time with family and friends within their household or connecting virtually with loved ones and keeping up to date on information. Other coping strategies that people have found helpful have included accessing government financial resources and having a supportive employer. And in addition to these broad coping strategies, there's been more intensive types of supports that a smaller proportion of the population has drawn on, such as connecting virtually or in person with a mental health care provider, for example. We've heard a lot about this idea called Zoom fatigue, where we're just staring at a screen for the majority of our interactions. Do you think that that's having an impact on our mental ill health? Or do you think that it's still better for us to be able to see someone through a screen uh, when we simply cannot see them in person? People have reported in our data that uh, connecting with uh, friends and, and loved ones virtually has been a source of strength to them in coping with the pandemic. And I think people are choosing ways at this point that that meet their needs. Uh, you mentioned Zoom fatigue, and, and many of us are, are using online platforms for, for our work and are finding that um, it can be quite exhausting. It, it can feel like a lot more emotional work to, to be online in these meetings than it, it was coming together in person. And certainly it's, it's a different kind of connection than that in-person way of being together, uh, which can often feel a little more spontaneous and, and genuine. But I, I mean, I think for the majority of people, we're, we're coping in the best ways we can and, and using these virtual platforms in ways that are supportive of our mental health and, and facilitate connection. For the last generation, we've talked about reducing screen time. We even have apps now that are telling us, OK, you've been on the computer too much. But they tend to talk about more scrolling through social media. There's really sort of no interaction. It's, it's more of a unilateral thing that you're doing. When it comes to this type of screen time where we're interacting, is there a way that you can think based on your own research that we can sort of differentiate between the two? There might be a line that perhaps we can look for. Yeah, well, you know, there was a good proportion of uh, of our sample who indicated that one of their coping strategies was actually to avoid social media or to avoid other forms of media that focus on the pandemic, for example. So I would I would say that that's you know likely falls into um, some of the doom scrolling that you mentioned. You know, when people are finding that their exposure to the various online content that's out there is contributing to their feelings of stress or anxiety or low mood. Perhaps it's time to try to take a break from, from those resources or, or platforms and to consider uh, other forms of connection. The effect of COVID-19 on the individual is troubling. But many of us can rely on the fact that we have loved ones who can be there for us such as a family. But then again, the pandemic has taken even that stronghold away from us. Many of the supports families need, such as schools, organized community activities, and even medical institutions have had to close, leaving parents and children alone in a very unfamiliar and at times unwelcome world. Add to that the four separations both between and within families, and you see the greater problems that inevitably lead to concerns for mental health. Emily Jenkins has wanted to find out more about what was happening inside the family and how solutions can be found to keep that unit resilient. 
Her work may be able to help families withstand the pandemic now. And looking forward, any other significant disruption to its normalcy. What was the goal of doing this study? Early on in the pandemic, we were hearing a lot about how many parents and children were struggling with their mental health, but we were lacking good data. And indeed, there continues to be very little data on this topic. However, we wanted to contribute to a better understanding of what was going on at the family level to make sure that we could inform supports to protect and promote well-being. So let's start with mom and dad, the parents, or maybe mom and mom, or maybe dad and dad. Um, what, what impacts did you find on them based on the pandemic? And as you've already spoken about, you know, the already uh, present impacts that we currently have in our society. Well, in terms of impacts for parents, uh, this group actually was one where we saw some concerning patterns emerging. Higher levels of mental health deterioration were noted, as were higher levels of increased alcohol and cannabis consumption, thoughts of suicide, uh, fear of physical and emotional domestic violence, and being stressed and worried about having enough food to meet household needs. So this is likely influenced in part by financial concerns. Uh, parents were much more likely to report worry about their finances and job security, as well as the strain that many felt in terms of juggling multiple demands, including education and care, while also maintaining work responsibilities and caring for other family members, including, uh, in some cases, older relatives. Parents were much more likely than some of the other subpopulations or groups to identify concerns about physical or emotional safety within the context of their families. Similarly, we're also more likely than the general population, for example, to report having suicidal thoughts in the past two weeks prior to taking the survey. Um, so definitely uh, some, some complex things going on for parents and uh, likely, as I said, uh, highly linked to these broader conditions. And even in this day and age, Childcare seems to be one of the greatest stressors when it comes to parents. But in COVID-19, we were closing schools. How did that interaction of parents with their children in times when they were supposedly not supposed to be together, did that help or, or did that harm the whole family unit? Yeah, you know, I think school closures are seen as necessary, kind of dependent on what kind of levels of, uh, of the virus are happening at a community level and, and therefore the, the risk for spread in the school context. And so it's been very difficult on many parents uh, to navigate having to do online schooling at home while also uh, trying to work. Um, and especially for, for those whose children might have certain needs that require more intensive resources or intervention and, and that those uh, resources have become less available or unavailable in the context of the pandemic. All right, let's move to the children. What did your study find in terms of the impacts on them? We asked parents to give us an indication of how their children's mental health was faring. Uh, and for most, they indicated that their children's mental health had stayed the same since the onset of the pandemic. Um, for many, the pandemic has meant having more quality time with their children, uh, including more positive interactions, feelings of closeness, and opportunities for showing love or affection. However, nearly 30% of parents did report that their children's mental health had worsened. The reasons for this are likely complex and involve a number of intersecting risks, including increased tension within the family unit, as we've been discussing. 
These tensions have translated into some parents reporting more conflicts with their children, as well as more yelling, disciplining, and, and using harsh words. There's also significant shifts and transitions in children's everyday lives, including uh, what we were just talking about in terms of school disruptions, distancing from friends and family, uh, and changes in access to some of the protective resources, such as uh, connecting with teachers and coaches that would have helped to uh, build capacity for or maintain mental health. Do you then feel that the reduction of social capital by essentially having the absence of the physical presence of teachers, coaches, uh, tutors, mentors, whatever it may be, could have actually shown that what we would tend to call the extended family just simply was not there when it came to the mental health uh, for children. Yeah, you know, I think um, that's definitely playing into what we're seeing in terms of that, you know, 30% whose parents indicate a deterioration to mental health. Um, we've, you know, in, in mental health and particularly those of us who have a, a more population oriented uh, approach to mental health, uh, we know that these um, uh, different factors such as um, teachers and caring adults play such an important role in preventing mental ill health and promoting uh, positive mental health for young people. Um, and so the pandemic conditions have contributed to um, you know, restrictions for many in terms of accessing some of those resources, which have been um, quite important in mitigating, uh, you know, tension within the family unit. So I would say that um, particular subgroups of the population are likely um, more impacted uh, due to some of these changes. And we definitely saw that in terms of parents' mental health. Um, in the sense that it varied across sociodemographic characteristics within our parent subsample. Um, so, for example, among parents with um, children at home, deteriorated mental health was significantly more prevalent among women, uh, among parents under the age of 35, uh, those with younger children, so four and under, uh, parents with a pre-existing mental health condition, those with a disability, and also parents uh, reporting financial stress. Um, so, uh, yeah, these um, these positive or protective factors that uh, th they serve under, um, you know, typical times as uh, uh, helping to mitigate, um, you know, when when parents are struggling and uh, obviously um, aren't as available uh, for many in the current context. Did, was there any indication of a generational squeeze impact? where you have the parents who not only have their children to take care of, but they also have their elderly parents, the grandparents, that also are going to need attention. Uh, and, and again, because you can't see them in person, um, it's either limited to uh, you know, waving outside of the, uh, of, you know, the nursing home or whatever, or trying to uh, continue communications um, through Zoom or, or other social platforms. Uh, was there any impact there? Yeah, it's hard to say from our data, at least in the way that we've currently looked at it. Um, and in fact, what we have seen is that uh, it, it appears that those, uh, as people get a little older, um, that they're appearing to cope a bit better. Uh, and so the, the greatest deteriorations to, our, to mental health um, were seen at uh, the 18 to 24 range, um, kind of followed by the 24. 25 to 34 range. And then as people um, got a bit older, they seem to be uh, less likely to report 
you know, these these challenges with coping. Um, and so, you know, it's it's tough to tell just from those age ranges, but uh, you know that that 25 to 34 could fall into um, you know the population who is managing uh, you know older older parents or or grandparents and also uh, their own children. It's interesting that you talk about the 25 to 34 because when you look at the data, pretty much anywhere in North America, and you break down cases in terms of age groups. That 25 to 34 is always leading uh, in terms of the number of cases and the rate of cases. And it makes me wonder if perhaps there's also some kind of outside peer pressure that might be happening uh, for these individuals that might be increasing the pressure on them from a mental health perspective. Yeah, I, you know, I, I'm not sure you know, in terms of the data, we've we've certainly seen a lot happening um, as far as cases go in the older age population, so elderly, hence the, you know, vaccine rollouts being targeted there because they're getting more cases um, and uh, mortality rates are much higher. Uh, and then, you know, at the end of the summer, we started to see, um, you know, case numbers go up for some of the younger populations and uh, you know, that was linked to a uh, continuation of some of the social gatherings and, and such things. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to say, uh, you know, what, what's behind um, some of those numbers. Um, although, you know, anecdotally, there's been reports from that age group that, uh, you know, um, they are struggling with their mental health and that, uh, you know, having contact with peers is helpful for that. I'd also say, you know, 25 to 34 um, and the 18 to 24 year old age range, um, those are the population who are more likely to just be starting out in their professional careers, um, you know, heading off to, uh, um, you know, work in, in different kind of part-time employment situations, possibly landing um, full-time jobs for the, for the first time. But it, it means that they're also, uh, more likely to be employed in um, kind of more entry-level uh, jobs and um, that at sometimes the, the conditions in those workplaces uh, can be less than ideal um, in terms of, uh, you know, um, potential exposure and, and that kind of thing. So that could also, um, you know, I hypothesize be another contributor, but I, I'm not certain on, on what the data has to say about that. Now, I've actually spoken to a few families who are having troubles. And when they talk about finding resources, uh, the first thing they tell me is that there are obstacles in the way because they simply cannot do face-to-face -face and they don't believe that telemedicine is really going to be effective uh, if you can even get an appointment. But I try to tell them that there are other resources, uh, so-called asynchronous resources. And, and I know that is something that is under your purview. And, and I just wonder if you can take a little bit of time to talk about these asynchronous resources and, and how they might be able to help. Yeah, so uh, given the government's investment into these uh, virtual mental health resources, uh, we we're really interested in um, looking at how people were drawing on these to cope. 
Um, some of the more well-known or broadly available resources include Wellness Together Canada, which is a federal government program, uh, as well as the Canadian Mental Health Association's Bounce Back program, uh, which is now available nationally as well. Um, these resources are designed for those who are experiencing stress or mild to moderate symptoms of anxiety or depression. Um, and because they focus on skill building and reframing uh, thought patterns that are associated with distress, um, they're also uh, appropriate for anyone who wants to enhance their skills or capacity for coping with challenges. Um, in our research, we found that the overall use of virtual mental health supports, which uh, includes these websites and um, online cognitive behavioral therapy resources, uh, it was quite low, um, but aligned with previously uh, published literature on their use. Um, it was about 2% in our overall sample. And this rose to just under 3% amongst those who indicated a mental health challenge during the pandemic and to a high of roughly 10% amongst those who had experienced suicidal thoughts. Um, so really quite low uptake. Um, we did some additional analyses uh, examining virtual mental health resource use amongst our subsample who identified feeling panicked, anxious, uh, hopeless, stressed or depressed, or who had suicidal thoughts or self-harm in the two weeks prior to data collection. And what stood out here was that those who were receiving in-person mental health supports or connecting virtually with a counselor or mental health worker um, were six to nine times more likely to be accessing virtual mental health supports compared to those who did not have this personal connection with a provider. Um, for many, the barrier to access was that they simply didn't know that these resources exist, um, though there were also concerns around confidentiality, uh, stigma, uh, preferring in-person supports, or not thinking that the virtual supports would be helpful. Um, given the lack of awareness um, and that it was one of the really prominent barriers to access, we're hopeful that this could change with awareness campaigns and also through efforts to bring these to the radar of primary care providers or others who can prescribe them or suggest them as resources to their patients and support their experiences in working through them. If an individual or a family was interested in reaching out to these resources based on your research, but also you based on your own um, history in, in this type of research in, in mental health and mental ill health, do you feel that it's worthwhile to seek them out or should individuals and families still look towards traditional routes uh, to identify uh, direct resources and direct means for help? Mm -hmm. You know, I really, I think it depends on the family and on the challenge that's being experienced. Um, and so, you know, the, the severity of the um, types of symptoms that are occurring um, would be a good indicator of whether um, somebody needs more intensive uh, forms of, of help or support. Uh, as I mentioned, these are really uh, kind of geared towards um, those with more mild to moderate symptoms um, or experiences of stress. Um, and so it's, it can be a really good place to start um, and also a good place to, to turn while waiting for um, other more uh, intensive or face-to-face -face types of uh, resources to be available. That takes us to the end of the discussion, but I'm sure we haven't answered all of your questions about the effects of COVID-19 on mental health. 
Tweet me at jatetro or email me at thegermguy at gmail.com. And you can also head over to speakpipe.com slash sass and post your question there. For Curious Cast, this is the Super Awesome Science Show. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It really does help spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Emily Jenkins. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Deal of Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Greg Schott. Have a great week. Stay safe. And as always, make sure to show them some sass.